We're always telling your stories, and it's time someone tells ours. We're humans first, journalists second. We chose this career to give you a voice. Now we're voicing ours. It's true, journalism has much room for improvement, but not all hope is lost, and we want your trust back by humanizing one journalist at a time. We're sharing with you what we go through to bring you the news. The pain, the tears, the trauma, and the mental health struggles. It's painful, and sometimes we even work two jobs to make ends meet. But we all have something in common. The passion, the joy, and the love we feel for storytelling and holding the powerful accountable. That includes holding ourselves accountable. So here are stories from us. This is how we want to help improve the news industry. The Awakened Journalist is proud to present Media Healers by Emiliana Molina Fajardo. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Awakened Journalist and our special project, Media Healers. Today we will be speaking to Tali Taylor to give you a little bit of background. He's an award-winning journalist and investigative reporter. Tali is currently telling stories in Providence and Rhode Island for WPRI. And prior to that, he was uncovering issues in education, like low wages, economic segregation, pre-student funding, which is basically public school spending per pupil. And he's also worked at the Chicago Tribune, and he graduated with a master's from Medill School of Journalism, uh, with a focus in, I believe, sports and politics reporting. Yes. Um, so Tali, welcome, and thank you for agreeing to speak with us. Absolutely, thanks very much for having me. Awesome, Tali, so how did your career start and how did you decide to become a journalist? Yeah, so uh, that, that's kind of an interesting story, I think, because I think a lot of people talk about um, being called to journalism and uh, it's, almost a, it's almost something that I, I felt like was a prerequisite when I was trying to break into the business. And, um, and that really hasn't been my story. Uh, I was, I've always loved writing and was passionate about that. And starting really in college, I, I started consuming, um, you know, a ton of articles and news coverage every day. Um, but I didn't really put the two together until the very end of my senior year um, that, you know, I wanted to do something in journalism. And so that meant I missed all those internship opportunities during college, you know, didn't have access to those things. And I found pretty soon after that it's really tough to, to get in, you know, in a beginning starting job without having those things um, you know, on your resume. So, uh, yeah, my first couple of years were just sort of repeatedly hitting a wall uh, trying to break in. I, I started writing for a couple different sports blogs, um, living in the Boston area, um, covering some Boston sports, things like that. And you know, despite getting positive feedback from my editors and people I was working with and meeting every deadline and doing everything I thought I had to, to then move up, I wasn't getting access to full-time positions to, you know, even, even getting credentialed for things was really difficult because these sports blogs I was writing for were so new and, you know, weren't well known in the area yet and things like that. Um, and so, you know, it was a sort of a vicious circle, right? If, if you can't get the credentials to get the better access, to get the better coverage, well, how do you move up and qualify yourself for the, for the full-time position and things like that? And so um, speaking to mentors and things like that, you know, a lot of them said, 
journalism grad school isn't for everyone, but it might be something that you should consider. And I think that's an important point to, to focus on at the outset because I, yeah, I agree, you know, having now worked in, in news for um, six or seven years, yeah, it's not a prerequisite for everyone. I, I say nine out of 10 journalists, you know, if, if you know in advance, it can do those internships in college and, and you know, find some other way to, to break in or get a job right out of college. Journalism grad school is not necessary for you. For people like me, where it's something you realize a little bit later, I do recommend it. Um, yeah, and then to just sort of bring this to a close, uh, yeah, after I went to grad school, that was really the launching pad for me. And that opened a lot of doors and met a lot of people, expanded my network, and um, and it got a little smoother from there. Yeah. And it's good to mention that you didn't go to just any grad school. You literally went to the best school in the nation for journalism. Um, uh, that certainly helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Tali, what has been so far one of the most rewarding experiences as a journalist for you? So, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I would combine this. This combines with sort of the most impactful story uh, I've had, I would say. Um, which was as an education investigative reporter in uh, South Bend, Indiana, um, part of our coverage map was Southwest Michigan. And one of the districts that I covered in Southwest Michigan was uh, Benton Harbor Public Schools. Um, the more I dug into Benton Harbor Public Schools, the more I learned that there was just sort of this history of lack of funding, um, you know, schools closings, students leaving, charter schools popping up and poaching students. Um, it, was, it was really interesting, but also just sort of alarming. Um, and the more I dug into it, the more I, I, I wanted to sort of, I, I felt like there was something just sort of out of reach there that I wasn't quite getting my arms around. And eventually, finally, I found this data set in this research that showed that Benton Harbor was the eighth most economically segregated school district in the country. Wow. Uh, and what that means is that the, you know, a school district that bordered their school district had nearly twice the funding per students. Um, that, that district that bordered them was, you know, 90% white. The Benton Harbor schools was nearly 90% uh, people, students of color. Mm -hmm. And you had these two districts side by side who were getting vastly different sums of money, despite both being public school districts. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that the story became so rewarding is because I got this story out right before the, um, the governor of Michigan announced that they were going to close Benton Harbor's only high school, which would have meant that students would have had to have been bused out of the district, would have had to been bused to different charter schools, wherever. You know, this is a, a high school with tremendous history, over 100 years old, uh, multiple state championships in different sports, um, a really proud alumni group. And but because of, you know, students leaving, things like that, the governor was going to come in and close it. And so what I learned was that the, the school district was able to use my story and my research and use that to fight the governor. And they ended up winning. And so they managed wow. to keep their high school open. Um, they got, uh, they qualified for all these grants because of it. 
and uh, yeah, and and they were able to you know keep their their high school um, open and and sort of start to turn things around a little bit. That's amazing, Tolly. I mean, when it comes to journalism, I I think those are definitely the most rewarding stories when you can actually see how it makes a positive impact in a community. Um, and did you ever find out like specific reasons as to why it had received less funding? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really sort of complicated story, but yeah. yeah, essentially that there were all these different cutoffs for, um, for poverty levels, right? You, okay. You're at hundred percent of poverty, 200% of poverty. And if, if there weren't enough people reaching that 200% below the poverty level mark, they didn't get supplemental funding for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah, it, it, it was, it was a long story. Um, but essentially it, you know, it, uh, there was a lot of smoke indicating that it was for racial reasons and, uh, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. much it. That's amazing. Good for you, Tolly. Um, so that's been one of the most rewarding experiences. What has been one of the most challenging so far being in the, yeah, industry? yeah, it, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to pick one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tough to pick one. I, I, I think, I think that, you know, there was a long period where, um, I was out of work. You know, I, I followed my wife to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, this is before the, the job in South Bend, Indiana. I followed her to Ann Arbor because she was getting her master's in social work there. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, she had this incredible opportunity. And uh, if I was going to stay with her, you know, it, it was pretty clear I was, I was going to follow her. Yeah. And so I left my job, which had been freelancing stories for um, the Chicago Tribune and um, moved to Ann Arbor and just sort of didn't have work. And it was really tough. It was really tough breaking in there. I didn't know many people and, you know, all the people who were there who had jobs had sort of grown up in the area. They were Michigan fans. They were, you know, it was like a lot of places. It was a close knit community. Um, and then uh, I eventually got this job covering Michigan football for uh, CBS Sports. It was a it was a part time job, but I sort of figured, all right, I'll I'll prove myself in this and and sort of build my way up. And meanwhile, you know, my wife's you know loving grad school and thriving in it. Um, and uh, and then eight months in, I find out via Twitter that CBS laid off me and a hundred other people and to find out that news via Twitter um, was pretty devastating. It was the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, I remember. And uh, yeah, all of a sudden just, you know, sort of got 30 days notice and, um, and my wife at that point was gonna, so it was Memorial Day. So it was, you know, end of May, my wife was going to finish in December and that's six months. I just, you know, I got a few uh, freelance pieces, uh, some for the Chicago Tribune, some for the Detroit, Detroit Free Press. Um, but that was just really tough. And it just seemed like I kept, you know, 
now I'm, I'm now post grad school. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be past having to prove myself and, and get my foot in the door places, um, you know, at least in my mind. And of course that's not the case. And, um, that six months was really brutal. Um, that ended up leading to, fortunately, you know, sort of a nice conclusion. I, I, I had a news director in South Bend, Indiana, reach out, having seen my reel from three years prior in grad school. And, uh, and that's how I made the switch from print to broadcast. So that ended up working out, but, um, that was a tough period. And, and yeah, that's when I started seeing a a therapist, which helped a lot. Um, and really focusing on physical fitness and and things like that to get those endorphins from working out. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a dark period, I would say. Yeah. Looking, I mean, I can imagine and, and looking back now, what do you think was the biggest lesson you took from, from that situation? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, there's, I, I don't know if there's ever a period where you've, you've just made it and um, you're never going to have to, you know, you, you, I don't think there's ever a point where you're above doing certain types of coverage and things like that. That's something I learned in those freelance assignments I took th- during those months. Um, and, and that's fine. That was, I, I think it was helpful for me to, to take those lumps and um, to, to sort of keep, keep pushing through. And I think it made me, you know, once I got that broad, broadcast job, all the more motivated to prove myself there and, and excel there. Yeah, and I think, I mean, your your experience is unique, but it's not the only one. I think a lot of journalists go through um, the struggles of finding a stable job that's full-time, that has good benefits. Um, there's a lot of journalists out there that are definitely freelancing here and there and maybe don't have a stable job or a stable income. So good for you for being able to get past that and then find a, a job in broadcast. Um, Tali, have you ever had safety concerns while on the job? Yeah, uh, actually, when when we were in grad school, um, I uh, got a job or, or, you know, got a, I guess you would call it an internship or I don't even know what, what it's really called, but I was, I was working for USA Today uh, while in grad school covering the Republican National Convention in Cleveland in 2016. And, you know, all the concerns going into the week, I mean, we were given bulletproof vests and what are called bump caps, which are essentially like sort of armored hats. Um, By Northwestern? Yes, yeah, right, by by Northwestern. Um, Although I think all the USA Today staff got them as well. Okay, Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so, um, so coming into the week, we were sort of on high alert, you know, there was a lot of reports that white supremacist groups would be there, that there could be a lot of violence and we get there and what do we see? We see, you know, police on horseback, (laughs) uh, riding around the city. Um, and yeah, pretty, pretty early on there, um, you know, interviewing different protest groups and things like that. I, I find this guy who, sort of tells me in a whisper that he's going to light himself on fire in a few days. And um, he gives me his name and I look, I look him up and sure enough, he's done this at previous Republican national conventions uh, in the 1980s and was arrested um, 
both, I believe, in 1980 and 1984. Uh, and and he, set, he set the American flag on fire. That's the key, right? Um, that's the demonstration he wanted to do. And subsequent to that, oftentimes it would then it would then light himself on fire because that's, you know, lighter fluid, things like that. Uh, but anyways, so, but he had won a Supreme Court case that you're allowed to burn the flag in public. Um, but of course, once it becomes a safety issue, then, then police are allowed to intervene. So I keep in touch with this guy. And sure enough, a few days later, right outside of the convention hall, right outside of the security gates, um, he has an American flag. He lights the American flag on fire. It quickly goes up his arm and uh, and all of a sudden he's engulfed in flames. And, you know, I had interviewed him right before this. I'm, you know, taking photos and immediately surrounded by police and horseback. Um, and they just sort of other police sort of come through the ranks of the, the horses and and start arresting people um, and often oftentimes sort of throwing or hitting people out of the way to get to this guy, to, to put him out. And yeah, I mean, that was obviously, <laughs> safety was completely compromised there. Um, so I, you know, ducked out actually underneath a horse, which I don't recommend. And, um, and then just sort of ran off to an alley to, to sort of type up the story and send in the photos and, um, and, and break the news, which, which we broke, um, for USA today, which is great. But, um, obviously like looking back a lot of things I should have done differently there. Um, yeah. And a, a very dangerous situation. For sure. That was back in 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I, mean, I think 2016 was definitely one of the points where tensions really started escalating. And then, I mean, 2020 journalists, um, safety was compromised in multiple, multiple ways. Um, what would you want the world to know right now about journalists, especially taking into consideration um, protests like the ones we saw back in 2016 and most recently in 2020? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know if I have a really an original thought here, except, you know, we're not the enemy. We're trying to provide the the coverage and access so that you know what's going on so that it's not just coming from the people who have a vested interest in you know portraying themselves well or shaping a, you know shaping a situation to benefit their public image you know we're we're just trying to get the story for you and and put that out um i think having having switched to investigative journalism there's more appreciation for that I think is something that I've learned. Um, there's less cynicism for what investigative journalists do because oftentimes we're, we're coming to the table with a document or data or something like that. That's like, listen, you know, you want objectives, it's right here. Um, so I, I think, I think that's helped, but yeah, I mean, we're just, we're not the enemy. Um, we're, we're doing our best to get the news out and uh, we're people too. And, you know, I, I think, a lot of people who try to make the me the media this sort of faceless entity, um, you know, what, what ends up happening is that individual journalists get targeted and hurt because people just are able to sort of make them an, an other and and make them, you know, sort of detach from from seeing journalists as, as real people. And 
goes without saying, but we're real people. <laughs> we're exactly we're real people, and and it it kind of gives people that permission to harass journalists on the streets in a certain way, and and yeah, just remember we're humans too. <laughs> um, and and there there may be some bad apples in the industry, but there's definitely a lot of good journalists out there that are are trying to do well for your communities, like Tolly did. Um, with his reporting, with his investigative reporting. Um, and Tali, lastly, what would you, what is one thing that you would love to see the news industry improve? Because while obviously I, I believe there's more good journalists out there than, than there are bad apples. Um, and there's a lot of great reporting out there, like the one you did in schools um there's definitely things that we can improve on as as a whole um so if you could point to a specific thing that you would love to change or you would like to see the media improve what would it be yeah i thought a lot about this because you know you were nice enough to sort of give me a heads up about some of the things we'd be talking about today um like you know there there are too many things to discuss here today but yeah i think trying to sort of um, distill it down to one major point. The thing that has been the most disturbing to me is just the lack of access to um, higher level jobs for people of color, um, for journalists of color, for yeah, people in the business who, who you know, want to progress. And, and, and what does that mean? I mean, take let's go back to that Benton Harbor story. Mm -hmm. My three bosses were white men uh, at that job. And I had to go back to the table multiple times. Finally, the, the thing that convinced them was having all the data and all the proof at the meeting to show them for them to finally agree to let me tell that story. Um, they just weren't that moved by it. They weren't that concerned by it. And um, that was really problematic to me, right? I mean, you know, so that so that's one instance. Other instances, just working with journalists of color and seeing the the hoops they have to jump through and the struggles that they go through, either to get their 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 pitches sort of validated or, you know, things like that. Uh, it's just, yeah, there's just huge room for improvement in, in that in the industry. And I think uh, all the statistics back that up. Right? It's overwhelmingly white. It's overwhelmingly white men. Um, I think that's, you know, really an area that is way, way overdue to see drastic changes. Yeah, I, I agree because I think we, while we can definitely talk about issues like segregation, um, or, you know, racism, um, it definitely is more impactful when you actually have people of color sitting at the table telling you or you know expressing firsthand what it is like to live those issues in those communities um and it's just having you know insight um when it comes to making those editorial decisions so um i think that's that's a great point is there anything else that you'd like to add that maybe i haven't asked you I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's great that you're doing this. Um, 
you know, and, and I, I touched on it earlier, but I mean, in, in terms of, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the one point I'll just elaborate on is, you know, I, I, I see a therapist, my wife sees a therapist. Uh, I think more people should take advantage of that if, if they have that, that opportunity and that access. I think a lot of times I was thinking about what I hear a lot from my peers in journalism. And, you know, we were talking about trauma before. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people um, don't really validate their own trauma because they think that it doesn't sort of rise to the level of something that's worth having a, a therapist for. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, like that guy harassed me while I was doing my live shot. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, that was awful. Um, and then they'll sort of talk about it. And you notice they keep, they keep bringing it up and it clearly mm-hmm. really bothers them. But they think that like, Oh, well, other people have dealt with way worse. So like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna seek help for something like that. Um, I strongly disagree with that. I think seek help. I think, you know, your trauma is valid and the stuff that you go through is valid. And, and it's a difficult, high, you know, fast paced, stressful industry. And um, I think it can only help. It's only helped me uh, to seek, seek out a therapist and, and have someone like that to talk to and sort of vent to. Yeah, and I thank you for being so open about that and I completely agree because there's no need for us to compare our experiences with our colleagues. You know, because somebody is a war reporter doesn't mean that ASPUC back home or here at home covering domestic issues uh, can't have some sort of traumatic event as well. Um, I mean, we've been in school shootings and that in itself is completely traumatizing dealing with the families with the victims survivors um and even even what you just said like just being harassed at a pro uh, at a protest um can be in itself traumatizing at some level so definitely validate your own feelings validate your own trauma um, and don't compare your trauma with your colleagues you know don't don't feel like because you weren't a war reporter it, yeah. being harassed at a protest is not a big deal it, it is if you feel like it's a big deal Agreed. so yeah yep. that's a great point thank you for bringing that up yeah absolutely awesome Tali well I think um, this has been an amazing interview and if you don't have <laughs> anything else to add um, we'll end on that note validate your own trauma agreed awesome thanks so much thanks so much for having me awesome thank you for being here Journalists, this one's for you, to help you heal, to help you understand your worth, and to help you know you're not alone. So share the love and subscribe to Spotify and YouTube and follow us on Instagram. The Awakened Journalist is proud to present Media Healers by Emiliana Molina Fajardo.